I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome, my guest, Benjamin Davidson. Benjamin has an extensive knowledge on psychology, philosophy, and archetypes. He's not a counselor, psychologist, or a therapist. He offers eclectic dream analysis and edits historical dreams literature, all for entertainment and educational purposes. We met because he invited me to be on his show to share a recurring dream that I can remember well and explain it so that he could analyze the dream. It was quite an interesting experience. And so I invited him to be has to share his story, how he became Benjamin the Wizard, an interpreter of people's dreams. This is his story. He touches in many interesting points, including his neurodiverse brain and education. It was really fun to spend time in Benjamin's world. I think you will agree that he's a clever and jolly man. Let's enjoy his story. Welcome, Benjamin. Benjamin the Wizard. <laughs> to the show. <laughs> it's good to be here. Yes, I'm very happy that you're here. You interviewed me a few months ago about my dreams because that's your expertise and we will learn more about you soon. And then now I have the pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to do is, you know, uh, interview, say, other podcasters or creators and then very much like a win-win. I, I love those situations. <laughs> yes, and also because you interpreted my dreams. I don't know much about you, so I really want to know what is your story about. So you said that you have a story. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, um, I mean, this is a perfect time to drop the story about episode 100 that just came out. You know, over the past 99 episodes prior to that, I've been sharing the idea that I don't remember my dreams very much, which is part of the fascination I have with dreams. I, I can remember maybe a bare handful of them in my lifetime, less than five. For episode 100, I, I did a little mystery guest reveal and it's me. And so I talk about pretty much the two dreams I remember from like 25 years ago that put me on this path. Well, congratulations, number 100. When does your story start? The story of this chapter of my life that I'm currently on now at 45 years old starts about 25 years ago in 2000, 1999, somewhere around there. I'm, I'm going to Southern Oregon University trying to get my psych degree. Figured someday I'd hang out a shingle, be a private counselor, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one therapy type of stuff. So I was you know, taking a history and systems of psychology course. We came to a section in the history of psychology where it's like, and here's 1900-ish, and we've got Freud and Jung, and they had their unique approaches to dream interpretation. So the assignment was go home, analyze two of your own dreams or the dream of a relative. If you haven't had one, a friend, anything, just get a dream, do one from a Freudian perspective, one from a Jungian perspective, bring it to class and just show me you understand what those thinkers proposed as the cause of dreams and how to understand them. And so I did that and I picked two dreams of my own that I'd happened to, to have around that time and, and a little before. And the teacher was like, this is good. You understand what Freud and Jung believed. You looked at your own dreams from those perspectives. And I'm like, that really opened my eyes to the idea that dream interpretation is, it's not just a novelty. There's like actually something there psychologically that can be useful to people. And ever since then, I've had a kind of fascination with it. And it, you know, it was maybe a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to take it a little more seriously and say, well, let me start interviewing people. Let me see if I can 
take their dreams and give them something relevant to their life, a better understanding of themselves, of uh, the situations they're going through and, and and see if I can make a career out of it too. Uh, you know, who wants to work a nine to five? I want to never leave my cozy wizard cave and just, <laughs> just talk to people on the internet. So that's kind of where it started and how, how I kind of, the book ends the beginning and the, and the current place I'm at. And Benjamin, can you share the name of your podcast? Oh, it is Dreamscapes. A struggle in the beginning. There's always branding. I'm like, what am I going to do? What do I call myself? Well, I'll be a, a wizard because that, you know, we, we could talk about that in a little bit too. But Dreamscapes reminds me of a movie from the 1980s where they uh, had trained assassins and counter assassins going into people's dreams. A very famous movie from the 80s. I mean, I say famous, you may not, may not have seen it. But uh, one of the iconic scenes scared the hell out of me was the main bad guy transformed himself into like a cobra hooded snake monster. And he was chasing the hero inside the dream of a politician. So the very, very supernatural sci-fi-esque version of that. But I'm like, yeah, well, it's, there's landscape, what we see in the world around us. And then there's, you know, a cityscape. These are just words that are, that describe where we're at or what we see in front of us. And then there's dreamscapes. Uh, it's the landscape of our dreams. So I thought that's a, that's a cool name for a Yes. For a podcast. I mean, if I'm going to be doing dream interpretation, it'll be you know, dreamscapes because we're going inside people's heads to see what's there. <laughs> it is a cool name. It is a cool name. And then also I like your name, Benjamin the Wizard, the Dream Wizard. <laughs> so, yeah, Benjamin the Dream Wizard. Yeah. So wizards, ah, what do I say? Everyone thinks, you, know, you say wizard, they Gandalf. It's one of the most famous wizards in in fiction. There's others. And I use a more flexible definition that would include Socrates. I think Socrates was a wizard of his time. And it all goes back to the root of the word. Uh, it's from, I would say old English or something even before that, but the word wise. So a wizard was just someone who was wise or practiced the the art of gather, yeah, gathering and sharing wisdom. But when you think of a wizard, you think of these, uh, it's a very archetypal. So this is getting into like a Jungian on the Jungian side of things, I don't know if Jung had a specific, uh, you know, Carl Jung had a specific wizard archetype that he would probably acknowledge that as one. But you think of a someone who's older, uh, as uh, as demonstrated by long gray beard in the magical context, or in 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 the idea of um, the meta the metaphor, they speak magic words and they can scry in crystal balls, maybe and see the future, or they know things that other people don't. That's the the archetype. And then, you know, in the world, we can choose to embody a tremendous array of archetypes. And we do take on many roles as we live. You know, there's the uh, archetype of the nurturing mother, the archetype of the holy fool. We all kind of adopt these things at or become these things, embody these things at different transitional points in our life. I think, what is it? Jordan Peterson, Peterson is, he said once that the the fool is the precursor to the savior. That's a very deep idea. You have to first have an empty cup in order to fill it with knowledge. If your cup is if your cup is already full, your head is already full, you can't take anything new in. The new information just spills out. So you have to first be a fool, be, be one who is ignorant and, and un, un, uninformed, uh, incapable. And then you fill yourself with information and capability. And then that becomes the savior that fixes the problem that created the need for the fool uh, to to acquire. Anyway, long story short on that. <laughs> I love this stuff. I can go on for a long time. But I like it. I like what you're saying. It's, it's actually a good analogy as well. Yeah. Well, that's how that's the power of archetypes is these things are describing 
universal human experiences that we all go through. And that's that was that was Carl Jung's big thing is the collective unconscious, the idea that we, because of the nature of how humans are physically constituted, we have a specific relationship with the world around us. We all have common experiences. The episode, uh, in episode 100, the example I used was water. We all understand water in a lot of the same similar ways. It doesn't mean water in dreams means the same thing to everybody, but we all know water is wet. Water extinguishes fire. We need water to drink. Water falls from the sky sometimes. Because we are physical beings in a physical world and water is a physical object. And it's the same with a lot of other stuff. And that gets metaphysical with concepts like love and justice. And uh, But those are very, it's, it's very much like Plato's, I think it's Plato's or Aristotle's world of forms. I can never remember which one it is, those two. There's, a, there's an essence of things that kind of exists independent of the specific object so the essence of back full circle back to the idea of being a wizard what do i have to do to effectively truly live up to the to the aspiration of that archetype i've got to speak magic words i've got to say things that are true things that are useful things that what's a good wizard versus a, an evil wizard do do your magic words harm people or do they add value to the world and help another thing well it's a slight tangent i mean years ago and I don't know if anyone else verbalizes their process like I do, but when I have a an epiphany in a way, I like to put it in a phrase and I go, wow, this is what I just experienced. There was a time, very young, I mean, early teens, and I'm like, I'm going to need to choose whether I use my powers in this world for good or evil. I have a choice. I had a that epiphany of like, I, I could be a bad person. I could do bad things. I could. I don't want to, so I'm not. But the choice is there. So, it, and that's like, I think I got that from watching like Star Wars and whatnot. Like you can be, you know, the force is the force. You can be a Sith or a Jedi. You have a choice. Long story short on that, back to the wizard thing. <laughs> I go off on to, this is my tangential mind that I think makes dream interpretation possible for me. All these associations crowd in there and I just start saying stuff to people that I think might be true for their situation. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm on the, completely the wrong track. I say I rattle a lot of doorknobs. They don't all come open. But if I throw enough stuff out there, something's going to stick and someone's going to go, that, that, the way you just said that, that, I feel it, that we're onto something there. And then we follow that path. It's a collaborative experience. Back to the wizard thing. Sorry. <laughs> and Benjamin is do you have the cap full if you are a wizard or you still are collecting knowledge? You know, you always want to keep it not too full or build a bigger cup as you go. You never want to think you've reached the be all end all of everything. Humans are very limited in this world. We uh, lack the ability to have complete knowledge of everything. You know, the, the movement of atoms at the molecular level, we can't comprehend it or, or see long, complicated chains of cause and effect, which is the second element of a wizard is seeing the future, so to speak, really having lived long enough to experience enough of the world and, and gained enough understanding of how it works that you can tell people, if this happens, then this is going to happen following that because it's it's connected. It can't be helped. And telling people, you know, here's Here's the point at which you can make a choice. And after that, the choice is made, and then you're going to have a different choice. You, you can never go back and, and make another choice. Uh, so that kind of arcane knowledge, knowing maybe a little bit more than someone. So anybody can embody a wizard. Anybody can play that role for someone else. If you got a, you go to lunch with a friend, she's having problems. She can't see her situation very clearly. 
You speak magic words of of comfort and and investment. Listen to her story of cause and effect and give that feedback. And all of a sudden she goes, wow, I never thought of it that way. I see myself more clearly. I, I feel good because you care. Uh, and now I know what I want. And I, and, I, and I have some strategies for how to solve my problems. This is something everybody does. Most people do, I'd say, every day and they don't realize it. They're momentarily embodying these archetypes that transform the people around them. So uh, that's my story. <laughs> so wizard is for male? And then which is for female? I don't like the witch bar so much. Possibly. I'm I'm not sure how to conceptualize that. I do want to do a breakdown of the different types of, say, magic users in the world. And this is a work in progress, but I'm still trying to conceptualize it. But it seems like the evil wizard counterpart would be necromancer. It focuses more on death and destruction and what a necromancer does, it raises the dead to serve as minions. That's that's like the classic idea of a necromancer, uh, raising the dead. And minions are just to be controlled. So if you're using your magic to take a person who's not fully alive and manipulate them to do your will, this is how I kind of conceive like the evil wizard is a, is a necromancer. Then there are also enchanters and illusionists. Now this is going with the D&D style of thing, but we, we all know these terms. And I'm not sure which is which, but we have people who use their powers to enchant. I don't know which is which. Maybe the enchanter is the good and the illusionist is the bad. I'm not sure. It, it's more about the type of interaction people are having, the type of magic they're expressing, so to speak. You know, Maybe like an illusionist would be someone who's spinning a web of lies around someone, creating a false reality. And then maybe the enchanter is like someone who's just charismatic and using their influence, but not to deceive. But then again, it could just be a skill set. Like I would conceive of actors as either enchanters or illusionists. They exist to create the appearance that they are someone they are not for entertainment purposes, not to cause harm. Although if you go back to the ancient Greeks, the word, I think the word for actor was basically the same word for liar. Uh, <laughs> like this is someone who is not telling the truth. And that's, that's very true in, in terms of storytelling. Like if you, if I tell you yeah. I am the mighty Thor, I'm, I'm not, but I'm, uh, so I'm telling you I'm something I'm not technically not true. So uh, very interesting the way the Greeks conceived it. And then after that, there was the continuation of that idea that actors were professional liars, not to be trusted. So a lot of these traveling troops that did story storytelling were like, they were welcome to do an entertainment, but they were definitely outsiders in the village and we're going to keep an eye on them. <laughs> Very interesting thing historically. Okay. And then you have female witches. I haven't been able to conceptualize that very well yet. So it could be sorceress, ah. could be en enchantress, it could be witch. There's a lot of negative associations with witch that I'm not sure are accurate or proper. Yeah, witchcraft gets a lot of bad press. They didn't burn wizards. They only burned witches. This is very true. Yeah. Witch is more in line with the nature goddess archetype, uh, mother nature uh, in a way, if we go with positive associations, more in tune with the natural world. So they also speak magic words. They cast spells, so to speak, but they can be for good or bad either. So if there's a, so if witch was positive, what would the counterpart uh, negative be? I'm not Sure. Yeah. I mean, these are good questions. I'm still working on it. Like maybe someday I'll write a book. I leave you with that. Yeah. You can have another conversation about it. And so Benjamin, I'm curious and want to go back into before you decided to do this podcast about dreams, who was Benjamin before? 
tell me where were you born and how was your life? Oh, yeah, yeah. Grew up for about the first 16 years in a suburb of Sacramento, California, then moved out into the woods in uh, Southern Oregon with my family. Spent, uh, I don't know, maybe about 10 years bopping around Southern Oregon, going to school down there and doing, doing odd jobs and whatnot. It, pretty much for the past 20 years, I've been working inpatient emergency psychiatric. If someone has a crisis, uh, mental health, they're, they're uh, let's say, suicidal or schizophrenic. They go to the hospital. They're like, I'm not feeling good. I need some help. Doctor interviews them and decides to admit them for observation for, for a period of time. And, and, and so I was one of the people inside the hospital on the psychiatric unit who would interact with people, help gather information that would be useful towards treatment, have therapeutic conversations, keep people out of trouble, unfortunately participate sometimes in restraints for violent behavior, ultimately keep people from leaving that weren't allowed to, which always bothered me. I have a strong libertarian streak. I do not enjoy controlling other people. We had some folks who come in pretty strongly schizophrenic. They're not, it's just very obvious they're not seeing reality the way other people do and not able to care for themselves or stay out of trouble. Sometimes they would try to kick down the door and we would have to stop them. You know, after 20 years, I said, I, I just, I'm not enjoying as much as I felt it was a privilege to be a kind face and, and, you know, gentle voice inside this scary controlled circumstance. I did not enjoy being a mental health prison guard. So I decided to try and be a wizard instead and write some <laughs> books and uh, interview people about their dreams. It's a lot more positive, upbeat, friendly, cooperative circumstance. I, I don't control anything. I don't control what you dream or how you understand it. I just listen, offer suggestions, and hopefully together we build something unique. That feels much better to me. Yeah, it is not an easy job what you had before. I hope you didn't bring it home. Were you able to separate that? Usually, like anything, there's an adjustment period, and it can be a honeymoon where everything's beautiful, or it can be the the opposite where things are really difficult because you're trying to learn how to do the job well. And a lot of what you take home is your mistakes. If you reflect on a situation and you handled it poorly, if you're me, you, you don't like that very much. So over the years, the incidence of handling things poorly decreased because I found better and better ways to be flexible in situations, new interventions I hadn't tried before. You know, in the in the early days of me working in the hospital, there was kind of a leftover old guard from, you know, these were people who hadn't retired yet. They're in their 50s and 60s and they've been in mental health for 30 or 40 years. And they're carrying over some of the attitude and mindset from the 70s and 80s and 90s, which was a carryover from some of the 1950s approach to things where there's a, more of a confrontational nurses know best finger wagging style. So there were more confrontations and I was not comfortable with that style. So later in my career, maybe some 12, 15 years in, there was a circumstance where we were going to have to, by doctor's order, give a person a forced injection for psychosis. It was, you know, this person had been say uncooperative with the, with the pills and this was ordered. And when it's ordered, you give them the shot. And that's, that's just the way it is. Uh, another thing I was never very comfortable with. So there was a person there, but they were had a long history of violence and they had been violent during that particular admission and people were scared of him. I went in with the nurse and she's like, let's go offer these. You always offer the oral meds first. Say, please, please take the pills. And if they refuse, you got to come back with the shot. So this guy was like, I know why you're here. You're going to try and force those pills on me. You know, screw you. And I said, is there anything 
anything I can do to just have you please take these so we don't have to come back and do it the other way. And he's like, maybe if you got on your knees and begged me and like without hesitation, I dropped to one knee and I said, please, please. Totally humbling myself. He got embarrassed and was like, oh, oh, dude, dude, get up. Give me the, give give me the pills. Get, Get off, get up. Like he didn't expect me to do it. He was in shock and we didn't have to give him a shot. And all I had to do was just not pretend like, not have a confrontation, not have a, I know best, you're going to do what I damn well say. I just, I begged him because it was more important to me that we didn't wrestle someone to the ground. We, we just got the pills. We just got the pills done. That would never have happened in the first or second year of working there. I didn't have the confidence for it. I didn't have the skill set to know that's something I could try. Hey, what's the worst they could do? He kicks me. I'm on my knee, whatever. I'll get up, we'll leave, and we'll try it the other way if we have to. But I was willing to go there. It's not about me. It's not about my pride. It's it's about not having to tackle somebody if you don't have to. It's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> Good. And so what, what did your colleagues say? The, the nurse that I went in there with, she was like, Ben, that was dangerous. I'm like, I know. But it was my safety more than anything. And I'm willing to put that on the line to a degree. I, I practiced martial arts for years while I was doing this too. It, I wasn't too worried. Being on one knee is a, it is not a, an ideal situation. You don't have the high ground, but I wasn't too worried about a sudden attack. I figured I could, you know, at least escape without major damage. And, you know, like I said, I get kicked, but they were also impressed in a way of like, they said to me something like they'd never seen anyone do that before. You, you know where I got that from? And, and I didn't realize it until afterwards F- for decades, I've been a big fan of uh, Japanese animation and one of my favorite characters is uh, from an anime called Trigun. His name is Vash the Stampede. So he's kind of a Wild West gunslinger in space type of guy. And he's weird. He's the holy fool and the savior, alternately. he's People think he's an idiot and people are blown away by his skills. So it's great, great hero to emulate. Well, there was a bank robbery and they had hostages. And he comes out there without his gun and he's like, hey, I want to trade myself for the hostages let them go. I'll come in there because he knows he can take them out with a paperclip. The gang leader was like, maybe if you strip naked and he's like, whoop, I'm naked. Well, maybe if you get on the ground and bark like a dog, he gets on the ground, he barks like a dog and they fall over laughing at his antics. And while they're laughing, he uses a trash can lid to take them all out. That was the hero I was emulating in that moment. This idea of, I don't care if it humiliates me. That's not the point. I'm not here to look good. I'm here to get the job done, which has also informed the way I do dream interpretations because I don't care if I look like I know what I'm doing. I'm happy to be wrong if the process of being wrong gets a good result for the other person. I think a very consistent theme in my life is not not leaning into the pride thing. It's not that I don't have any and I don't ever get upset or being treated poorly, but you know, sometimes it's it's framing in terms of what are you here to accomplish and what do you got to do to get it done? What What's really important? Yeah, that's awesome. Going back to you moving from California to Portland, how was that? Did you like it? Was it shocking? We lived in Southern Oregon, kind of out in the country for a while. And I actually prefer that. Moving to Portland, yeah, it was for work because that's where hospitals were hiring psych staff. So I'd only gotten my, my bachelor's. There was a limited range of what you could do. Normally to be a practicing clinical counselor, you got to get your master's degree and then you get licensure, then you can hang out a, a shingle and there's regulatory stuff and fees. And to work as a behavioral health therapist, BHT or MHT in a hospital, a bachelor's was fine. Actually, maybe an associate's was fine. You needed to have that background and understanding the, the the base knowledge of what you were dealing with in the hospital in order to effectively do the job and effectively take notes. So, you know, part of what I did was observe and report. 
you know, for the doctor, this the person said this, they say they're feeling this way, they had this observable manifestation of a hallucination, they were trying to pick up things from a table that weren't there. So in order to tell what the behavior was and accurately express it so that a doctor could read your note and help diagnose the patient or determine if they're making progress, uh, having a, the psych background was extremely important for that. You come out of college and you think, oh, my cup is full. I know what I'm doing. No, 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 no. You, you got a drop in the bucket. Now you're going to fill it with experience. Seeing what you only read about beforehand and testing interventions to see what gets the best result and learning learning from others like there were I had mentors there and then later on you know you 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 spend 20 years anywhere eventually you become the mentor and there's new people come on and I would show them tips and tricks that that I had learned yeah um, i can imagine i can imagine but ben i thought i understood you you were in california and then you moved to oregon california till 16 and then um Southern Oregon through getting my college degree and then Portland for the last eh, 20ish years. Yeah, yeah. And so but how was that change? Did it affected you or I would prefer to still be living out in the country because I'd really l- rather live out in the woods. I'd really rather be in a in a true wizard cave in in the mountains. Someday maybe. I'll I'll get there. Okay, so you're in the woods kind of guy. And how did you decided to study psychology? My first love was always philosophy. I I'm just a I think by nature, I'm a kind of person where the wheels never stop spinning in my head. So I'm always thinking about stuff and I'm always trying to explain my thoughts to myself in a, in a more concise way. You wouldn't know it by hearing me ramble, but I've, I've crystallized some ideas as I go, like the idea of choosing between good and evil. That was a moment where I'm like, wow, I could make a choice. I have a choice to make. And I always loved Socrates. I, I consider him uh, one of the ancient wizards and a lot of philosophers were very wizardly in their way. Then I was looking at going to college and I'm like, okay, there's two paths you can tread in in philosophy. You become a philosophy professor or you stand on the street corner yelling at people about, they don't know what they're talking about, you know? <laughs> yes, I know. that. And, was- and, and I just didn't want to be in academia for the rest of my life. I, I didn't really want to become a professor, not because I didn't want to teach. I, I abandoned the idea of studying all the philosophy and I said, well, what is the most fascinating aspect of philosophy for me. And it is the why of human behavior. And I'm like, well, we got a discipline for that. We got psychology. Let's get into that and start studying. How does the brain work? How do we perceive the world? You know, what motivates people's choices? Science itself is a branch of philosophy. Chose psychology as my, my most interesting potential for a career. But you didn't know exactly what you were going to do after having a psychology degree. No, I, I always imagined I would go on to get a, a master's degree and hang out a shingle and be a private counselor. But I thought that was the career path. I thought that's what you do with a psychology degree is you put it into practice. Uh, and then I found the you know the hospital job with uh, where I didn't have to go any further in my education. I'm like, well, I don't really want to go back to school for another two or three years to get a master's. And it was kind of a lateral financial move as well. I could go into a bunch of debt for school again and be making the same money by the time I was done. So I'm like, I'll just stay in the hospital and do that thing. And that's how I did that for 20 years. Like it pays well. I'm working with good people. I'm helping. As I used to refer to them, I would I would call all our patients customers. I wouldn't call them patients or clients. I had that mindset of customer service. I'm here for this person. I'm here to give them something of value in return for my paycheck. And sometimes the customer's not always right. Sometimes they are delusional, but you're still trying to serve the customer <laughs> in that way. 
Great. That's great. Knowing what you know now, would you have changed the path? Would you have done something different? You know, I don't think I would. That's a funny thing. I don't go back through. Okay. I go back through my life and there's certain maybe embarrassing or unfortunate or tragic things, I, uh, decisions I made where I was like, I was just wrong or I was prideful, you know, learning lessons. I, I want to forget them so I don't have to keep, think about them occasionally, but I don't know that I would undo them because they added up to where I'm at now. That's a funny thing about changing the past. If, if you could, you become a different person with different choices. I actually had a had an episode I recorded with a guy where he dreamed it highlighted the idea of he was considering who he might have been, perhaps, had he made different choices. He was questioning the validity of choices in the past. There are definitely choices I would not make again, but I, I don't know that I would change them in the past to be on a different road. Uh, I think it's all added up to where I'm at now. And you know, it's, I think it's a good place. So even the bad things that happened to me, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of just it had to happen. Yes, yes. And I'm curious, since you were so interested and always analyzing things, how were you in high school? How was that with your classmate? School up to college was a pretty miserable experience. Never wanted to be there. Didn't enjoy hardly any of it. Ah, I'm a hard person to get to sit still and listen to someone explain something. I've tried to become better at that because really there are people you should probably sit still and listen to. It was always boarding class. I didn't like the structure and the conformity and the authority. Part of what motivates my libertarian worldview is I don't like to be controlled by other people. Therefore, I will not control other people to the best of my ability. And so in California at the time, there was uh, what was called the California High School Proficiency Exam. When I was 16, you know, we left. California to go to Southern Oregon. By that time, I had already graduated high school. I never finished. Well, when I was 16, I took a test that said, you've already learned everything we would expect you to know by the time you graduate in senior year. And I was two years ahead of schedule. So they let me leave and said, you, you've graduated. You're, you're done. So I, I don't actually have a diploma. I have a certificate that says, you don't have to be here anymore. And I said, peace. I'm out. <laughs> always hated this. Always felt like a big social club that I wasn't uh, enjoying being a member of. Is that because you were super smart? You were really restless to be sitting and listening to the teachers, things that you already knew? I'll let you say that about me. I try not to say that about myself. Yeah, some of it I was, well, some of it I was bored because of that. And some of it I'm just like, I want to sit on this desk and listen to this person ramble about something I don't care about. And it's tough because were they telling me something maybe I should pay attention to and listen, or was it actually just useless garbage that I really didn't need? You had a bad attitude? I probably did. And that's the thing. I want to I want to give myself credit where it's due and give myself condemnation where it's due. Like It was definitely a little bit of both. I was too smart for the class and disinterested in things I should probably shut up and, and respect the idea that, yes, the teacher does know more than me, and maybe they've got a point, and maybe I should listen and pay attention and you know, there's things I was good at and things I was not good at. And I, my pride was a little more touchy when I was a kid of like embarrassment and failure, huge reaction. And I just couldn't deal. It's complicated in terms of that. But ultimately, I two years before I would have graduated had I continued to learn more. I took a test saying, you know it all. Don't worry about it. Get out of here. And so you went to college or to university at 16 or you had to wait? But it was uh, 17. So when I graduated and then took the summer off and whatnot. And then the turned 17 in the, in the, in the fall season, I tried, uh, I took a philosophy course and a guitar class and I was in a play. I was a terrible actor. Didn't get a great grade in the 
guitar class because I wasn't a very dedicated student in terms of practicing. And I got an A in the philosophy class. A teacher liked me. He was a, he was a kook. I love that guy. He was a real wizard. He was, he was a crazy man and super smart. It was another example of being too big for my britches and learning my own shortcomings in a way of like, I didn't handle this well. I didn't, I didn't take this seriously enough. I thought I was ready for something. So I stopped. And then, well, and then we moved, but I didn't re-enroll. It was a while before I decided, you know, maybe I should give school a try again and really you know, go to college and take it a little more seriously this time, perhaps, or bring a different mindset or a different skill set to it. And I enjoyed college in a way that I did not enjoy high school. Funny story on that one. By the time I was in my th- the end of the third year or middle middle of the fourth year for, for college, I, I went to my academic advisor and I said, I've taken all the psychology classes and I can't find any new ones. And she's like, that can't be possible. And she went and looked at my transcript and she's like, you did, you took every single psych course and you still have credits left. And I'm like, that's a problem. I want more psychology classes. And they're like, well, you're supposed to round yourself out by studying other things. And I'm like, I came here for psychology. Can I just learn more about that? And like, we don't have any more classes. So I ended up taking, you know, underwater basket weaving for, for the cross-eyed. I did a bicycling class. I, I did some physicals, but I, I, I took a golf class. I filled it with just random PE stuff. And literally I took pottery. I did, I fired some pots, <laughs> uh, all to round out the educational credits. I needed. so I think our education system is broken in a way. Like in my opinion, the entire two first years that associates level general ed should be done with that by high school. At the end of high school, you should know how to read, write, and do your damn math. Now you start learning a profession. Yes. I think it should be four years. If you're going into psychology, four years of nothing but psychology classes, 12 to 16 credits for four solid years. If we had that, you could come out of it with a PhD at 22. So if I could wave a magic wand. I think this is only in North America because I grew up in Venezuela. And when I finished high school, I went straight to study law and it was all about law. I didn't finish after the second year. I dropped because I didn't really like it as much and other circumstances in my life. I was expecting that university here was the same. And on top of that, in Venezuela or South America, you have options of private and public universities, the same as in France or Scotland, Germany. And I feel like education should be free. Yeah, definitely. I mean, okay, I'm libertarian. So I'm like, the the government should be doing nothing, in my opinion. But I would be a lot more comfortable with the idea of free education, say, if it were done well, it's just not. And that's, that's a big deal for me too. It's part of ending up in libertarianism is, is a philosophical approach to how humans should ideally interact with one another. Do not use force, fraud, or coercion to control someone else. Bottom line. That said, if we were all contributing to something and it functioned, I'd be more like, uh, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe where this is okay and I can, whatever, I don't like how it's being done, but it works. But we've got a system that's just so broken. It's millions wasted on nothing. Bill billions at some point. And, you know, so if education was done better, done well, we could probably have people, yeah, graduate from high school, be already at the second year college level as it is today, spend four years getting it. And we could all have the equivalent of PhDs in knowledge. I think part of that is that we've shunted, well, there's a lot of problems with it, but there's been an ex- inflation. There's There's been the idea of academic inflation in terms of everyone's got to have a degree just to get a job. That's a problem. We, I think we need more people who it's like, it's not a bad thing that you're or 
someone may be more suited to work with their hands than with their head. I have tremendous respect for craftsmen. People who work with their hands keep the lights on. They they built the chair I'm sitting on. They they built the car I drive. There's people who are genius with their hands. They're never going to do calculus or or philosophy. That's not their thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's different specialties. I think we need more of a track of like, and it's hard to say, people think it's, you're not smart enough. No, you're smart in a different way. You're smart with your hands versus smart with your head. So if we could dif- differentiate that a little better, we could have yes. tremendous education. Benjamin, in, in Germany, which I don't necessarily agree, but by the, the time that you are in middle high school, if your grades are not good, they decide that you are going to be a plumber or an electrician and you are not going to be able to move forward to go to a degree in university, which it could have been your case. However, it's not fair because people could hate high school and then shine in in university. So that's why I don't think that that should be this, the case. But some countries have that option too, that they said, okay, you're not doing great. So here's your other choices. Don't waste your time in school anymore. Yeah, that's tough too. Because it, it very much does sound like a condescending, well, you're just not smart enough. You got more options. You don't have to do this. You don't have to push yourself to do something you're not interested in. You're not good at no offense. I'm not good at sports. I'll tell you this. I could not reliably hit the ball off the tee in T-ball. Very young age, hand-eye coordination, awful. I'm terrible at video games and first-person shooters. I'm never, so I'm never going to be a basketball star. I'm never going to excel at physical things that require wiring. I don't have, and I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just like, that's not, that's not my deal. What about dancing? Not not a dancer. I got two right feet, not even two left feet. Dr- I play drums so I can coordinate my body in some ways if it's rhythmic and I'm sitting down. Uh, you start moving the whole body at once, I can't. <laughs> well, that's hard though. Drums is yeah, hard. Yeah. Music always made a sort of sense to me. Like I plink around on a piano, I can play the guitar, drums. And actually a, a previous iteration of me trying to express entertainment talent was I was a, um, a bard at Renaissance fairs and called SCA events. We just go around to people's camps and play music on my guitar and sing songs. And bard is always welcome. It was part of my autistic coping mechanism for socializing. Like, I don't know how to just talk to people. So I will bring a skill and then they will love me and I can be awkward afterwards. And they'll go, oh, he's just charming. <laughs> I see. So that's, that's your trick. You're kind of shy who doesn't know how to approach people. So you try to get a skill. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I'm I'm basically on well, legitimately diagnosed on the autism spectrum. So socializing has never been my strong suit. Social interaction. So it isn't shyness exactly, although that is what it looks like. And there's a I'm very introverted. You wouldn't know it by but introversion is poorly understood. Introverts are capable as I am of interacting and talking. This is fantastic. This this whole transfer to remote connective technology. Better at not having you sitting right in front of me in the same room. That is horribly distracting and f- just feels weird. And I don't know what to do with my hands and my facial expressions. I'm thinking about one thing and trying to listen to you. And then I say something weird and I'm off on a tangent. The, the basic for uh, thing for introverts and extroverts is it's more how you discharge and recharge energy. Yeah. So for me, for, for the introvert, Social interactions are very draining. It takes a lot of energy and focus and attention, and you just become mentally exhausted 
interacting with people. And the only way you can recharge your battery is to go be alone for a long time. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between being alone and lonely. Alone is good. Lonely, nobody cares. Alone is, I'm choosing this for myself, you know. Uh, Having a skill, having an in, having to say, hey, I play guitar. You want to hear a song? And people go, hey, that's pretty cool. And then you can just kind of chill and be quiet afterwards. And people are like, he's the song guy. He's saying, that's what he does. They don't expect as much. It's uh, definitely greases the social wheels in that way. Yeah. Hmm. What would you say I am? Can you tell? Ah, probably say I have not gotten to know you well enough to guess, but I'm going to guess anyway, because it's just for fun. I'd say maybe you might be a little more on the introverted side. Yeah, introvert. Yes, I am introvert. Okay, good deal. Yeah. I didn't know because I like to talk to people and I go and talk to people and I always want to know the stories and I'm always there. It comes a point that... I need to hide. And I actually realized that now that since I was little, I used to always hide. I used to find little boxes, little rooms, little spaces. Of course, I I will let my imagination go as well in in those boxes. (laughs) Yeah. And there's no wrong way. I mean, yeah, I think there's been some negative connotation added on the introvert. Yeah. And knowing your style is very, very empowering too. So you can say, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. This, This is just how I roll. Yes, yes, that's true. How do you find out that you had the autistic portion? Well, a little little bit of a backstory and then get to the issue. So the underlying concept is they tell medical students, you're going to be a medical doctor, you know, you're going to read a lot about weird conditions. You don't have them. Don't worry about it. You're going to, you're going to start, you're going to become a hypochondriac as a medical doctor. I have this weird, rare condition. I have these symptoms. Like, no, you don't. It is technically the opposite in psychology. Now, no one said this to me, but based on that, what they tell doctors, I I look at that like, okay, when you're studying psychology, you're going to start thinking you have all these weird symptoms and you do. (laughs) We are all fundamentally subject to these principles and the expression of these things. The the thing about psychology, it's a matter of degree in a way that it isn't, and and by degree, I mean level or variation, which is different than in physical medicine where, you know, cancer is a physical thing. You can find it on a scan, you can cut it out. It's a physical object. Well, psychology, these are all constructs in our mind. Now we have, there's physical brain damage, but that's a, that's a different thing. What does it mean to be depressed? Well, it's a cluster of symptoms that once you have enough of all of these different things all together at the same time for a certain period, we call that state of being depression. And it's when when people say it's all in your head, yes. And it's real. The thing I say is that, you know, feelings are always real. They're not always right. So it doesn't mean you're not experiencing fear in a given situation, but if that fear is objectively unjustified, we call that paranoia. And it's a matter of perception. You know, it's fear out of proportion to danger in the environment. Uh, Long story short on that, too late. I've always had the suspicion I had some kind of diagnosable condition and I, and I did for years and I was depressed and I'm taking medication for depression and anxiety. I thought I had ADHD. I'm like, cause that was kind of a thing for a while. And I'm like, I had fits in some ways. I thought maybe I could have been bipolar. Uh, you know, so I, I'm hitting my forties and I'm like, I'm just going to find out. Let's just go get some testing. And I said, I think I'm on the autism spectrum. This is my suspicion. So I went in, I got it tested and legit Asperger's um, high functioning autism. And that explains a lot throughout my life. A lot of my approach to things, my power struggles and rigidity with with routines and stuff. I'm a very 
scatterbrained person. So I'm a very hyper-organized person. It's very hard for me to focus, which was why I thought I had ADHD. And you see, I ramble all over the place on connected ideas. Once I finally got the testing done, you know, a lot of things made sense. It's like, just, yeah, no wonder this is, this is how I roll. This, this, this fits um, the behavior. So all, all of that to get you there. So I discovered that through psychology and studying myself, what, what the hell's going on with me? And it's interesting because we try to shy away from putting people in boxes. However, when you put yourself in a box, you're like, okay, that makes sense. I understand. Yeah. So I feel like he has a goods and bads about it. Uh, so, but what tests did they do? Do you just have to answer questions or what happened? Yeah, there's a variety of, of methods. It's, it's a lot of it's um, survey questions, interview, uh, they ask relatives, like my wife, they gave her a questionnaire to fill out. And I'm like, I don't even want to look at it. Just tell them what you see. They also did IQ testing. So, okay. So where's my, where's my deficit? My deficit is in executive functioning. One of the reasons I have trouble with executive functioning is verbal processing which is crazy because this is what I'm trying to do for a living, verbally process with people. But probably through this interview, you can hear how disorganized I am and how much I go off on tangents and I can't kind of contain it. It's hard to stay focused and on one single track and concise. Explain in just as many words as necessary and no more. So the, the executive functioning is it's decision-making, making sure I've got the complete picture in order to understand what the hell I'm doing, which is why I spent a lot of time developing patterns, structures, outlines, putting concepts in a box where I can go, if, if I tick all these necessary elements, I know I've covered the bases. I understand it properly. So a lot of my learning something new is being horribly confused, the empty cup. Now I have to create a structure for me to understand it. And if that structure changes with new information, back to the drawing board, wait, what? This doesn't fit. Now I have to make a new structure. I find that this is fascinating and I'm glad that you did the test. I think that everybody should have the opportunity not to use it as an excuse, but if you understand that this is kind of like the situation that you're in, instead of beating yourself up, you understand that, okay, this is the person that you are and here your strengths are these and focus on that. Yeah, exactly. Which kind of brings us back around to the idea of the education system in a way. It's like if we could give people more neutral, factual information about themselves, here's where you excel, here's where you have deficits. Now you can make a choice. You can try to improve your deficits or you can just lean into what you excel at. You want to give people good advice, but you don't want to tell them what to do. Ben, I think it's also important if, if your deficit is basic skills, you do have to work on them. Yeah. And this is a very interesting, so I'm the uh, son of a, a civil engineer. My dad does uh, high level math in his head and then draws it out and he makes bridges and towers stand up in a tornado. He's, he's that guy. I can't do that. But I, yeah, but I always had a, a talent for kind of like problem solving. You know, it was, it was like, I always considered like a puzzle, puzzle solving. And if you get enough pieces, you start to see the colors and then you see the shapes that fit with each other. And like you put enough of those together. Hey, I see a face. That's a face and there's hair. Okay, let's look for more hair pieces and try and put this together. Benjamin, how was it with your father being an engineer and then having a son who wasn't as good as in math? I, I remember some early experiences where I'm, I'm actually in tears and I'm like, I don't get this. And he's like, I don't know how you can't understand it. This is obvious. And we're talking like not very high level stuff. I just couldn't get it, like algebra equations and stuff. You have siblings? Yeah, yeah. I have a brother. He uh, he got a computer science degree and so so he's done well. He's, he's very much more on the science math side of things than I am. So was it difficult to connect with him? It is difficult for me to connect with everyone. Would it have helped you to, to know that, that you were in the spectrum sooner when you were in high school or so? 
I think it might have. I mean, I'm always a big fan of understanding more as soon as possible. My parents noticed I was kind of moody and sad sometimes. And so they actually tried to take me in to see someone and I wouldn't talk to them. And it's pretty typical for kids. They don't want to open up to some random stranger in an office. So I had an opportunity to get help and I didn't take it. Great. You're doing a lot of good things. And now with your podcast. So let's go back to now. What are the plans that you have for the future? I want to keep doing what I'm doing and just be more successful at it. I've got coming up on like almost 1,300 subscribers on the YouTube channel. So the plan is keep growing that, keep getting more subscribers and eventually get monetized. So it's a source of income. Published 15, what I call works of historical dream literature. So I'm the editor of these works. I've not yet written my own book this my own full creation. Working on that. I got some ideas. It's coming. And maybe it'll be like um, Dream Interpretation the Wizard's Way. Wow, that's great. One of the folks I interviewed recently, she offered me a job as an independent contractor doing private dream interpretation sessions. That's kind of amazing. That's excellent. And I never have to work a day job again. I can just do this for the rest of my life, talk people and never leave my garage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I work uh, weekends at a, at a care home for intellectually disabled persons. You're wonderful. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for being here. Awesome to learn more about you. Yeah. I'm super happy that you connected with me the first time and yeah. that I got the opportunity to get to know you. You are a fantastic individual, very smart and jolly, jolly guy. Generally, generally happy guy. Yeah, yes. it's, uh, and it's been great knowing you too. And I'm glad we connected. Again, this is those miracles, win-win situations where you're like, this is so good for both of us. And we had fun doing it. And it's, sometimes it doesn't get better than that. Yes. So thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it today's episode. I am Daniela and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This will allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.